0: Welcome back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's a professor of archaeology, expert on the occult, and how does one say it? Obtainer of rare antiquities. Ah, uh, yes. It's Mr. Jeff huge
1: Hey, that's me. What's up? How's it going? Ah, uh, it's, you know, it's not bad. Things are okay. We're in August now, yep. so uh, I can't complain too much. I mean, we're not oh, in I August can't. now yet, but we're... <laughs> We're in August now, <laughs> as far as Swibly goes, and um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm starting to to adapt to and or enjoy the new format of the show. I'm really looking forward to these starting to roll out. So by the time sure. you hear this one, is the first one has already rolled out. Uh, right. But for me, you know, because it's all about me, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing it. <laughs> the other day,
0: I had to go get something out of my garage. Yeah. And I don't have an automatic
1: garage door opener; and it's manual. You know? Yeah.
0: So I lifted it up. And it took me by surprise because after I got past the halfway point, it just came crashing down at like 90 miles an hour. Yes. And I was like, rut row, something something is afoot at the Circle K. Yes. One of the springs has snapped
1: Uh, inside. That sucks. I had that happen at two two springs on either of my garage doors in the time I've lived in this house. Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: So I'm looking at the mechanics of it and it doesn't look like all that complicated. You know, it's a spring and a cable that runs through it. Yep. And I'm going over and I'm looking over at the like lowes.com and stuff. You know, the springs are only like, I don't know, like, I saw something like $35, $50 right. or something like that. And it's asking me how much my garage door weighs. Right. How the f- am I supposed to know? I'm gonna get out there with a the scale, you know? Yep. I don't know how much it weighs. So I'm kind of playing the guessing game and all that. So I said to, I saw my friend Jed, I was working with him at uh, right. one of the weekend gigs that I do. And I said to him, what do you know about putting in garage door springs? <laughs> and he said one of the funniest lines <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Okay. He goes, I know it's something you hire a professional to do.
1: <laughs> it, that's exactly true. Uh, they are the Rubik's Cubes and or Tetris games of home appliance fixings. At least if you have a garage door opener, in my case, because there's pulleys yep. and cables and junction points and all kinds of things in between wherever that damn spring is and whatever part of it broke off.
0: Yeah, well, he said that his uncle tried to do it, like, last July. Yep. And then last August, his uncle had to have his bowling ball redrilled. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Eey, that's tough. Eey. Yeah. Uh...
0: And then I talked to a couple of other people, too, and not one person had a, like fun and uplifting story right they were all horrific they, yeah fingers going flying and stuff like that yeah so i gotta make a phone call in a couple of days i, I found somebody oh, i'm just gonna to talk to him about setting up an appointment but yeah i will not be doing that uh by myself thank you, you'll, you. Be, oh, be, thank you to know you'll be
1: surprised how <laughs> short an amount of time it takes for them to fix it when they uh-huh. the professionals come and do it and you'll be like i could do this myself and then you have to talk yourself out of th- thinking that ever again uh, for the exact right. same reasons that we've talked about. Like, when the professionals do it, it's like the professionals do anything. If I had hired a professional right. to put in my dishwasher, I would have never have thought, like, well, this is going to be four hours where I may electrocute myself.
0: <laughs> no, like, all, all the stories I hear, they're all like, and then when the cable flipped, it, it ripped a, uh, a portal in the space-time continuum, <laughs> and the figure didn't show up for five years right, right. at a summer cookout, which was inconvenient, let me tell you.
1: <laughs> Definitely not a task you do uh on your own. You have to no, be—you have no to thanks. be capital H handy to do that, and and only professional people are.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there's a stiff learning curve in there, and then at which point you are no longer
1: handy. Right. Like in every sense of the word. No, at that point you have to go and be a garage door technician because that's what you do now.
0: No, no, at that point you don't have any hands and you oh.
1: can't do anything. <laughs> oh, you can't <laughs> do anything, right? The other side of the all board. right. This is going to be the week beginning,
0: August the 14th, but before we get the show started, I do have the very popular and always well-received trivia question, hey, Jeff.
1: Hey, uh-oh. Oh, man. So, All right. Uh,
0: it is a popular thing, with a thing on it,
1: Okay. that uh,
0: at the end of a, when a football player scores a touchdown... They will spike the football. Right. Who is the first person to spike the football and why?
1: Oh, man. All right. Uh, this is a sports question, so I'm already going to get this one wrong. But all, all right. right. The, other, I, the end gonna, of the show. I'm going to blow this one right out of the water and give you an awesome answer. So Sure you will. I'm sure I will. I bet you, I bet you will. I'm going to be spiking the football of uh, the answers to this trivia question at the end. But this is the week beginning, August the 14th, and it's your turn to start. Oh, all right. Bill, I don't know if you're a soap opera guy, but on August 14th... I'd like to be. You'd like
0: to be? (laughs) I'd like to be someday. Uh, uh,
1: On August 14th, 1933, the very first long-form soap opera premiered on Cincinnati local radio. It was ultimately picked up by NBC and then by CBS and ran for years. It was called Oxidol's Own Ma Perkin. Now, I was not born before that show went off the air, and I certainly didn't have access to radio soap operas, but this thing ran from 1933 to 1960. Jesus. Yeah, and it started the same person as Ma Perkins all the way through the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's I don't know. I else. mean, I don't know what
0: that is, but it must have lived on in the vernacular of like my parents because I, rem- I the name Ma Perkins sounds familiar to me. Right. It might have been something that my father or my mother used as a joke reference mm-hmm. that completely went over my head. Because right. it goes over my head now. I don't get it. Uh- <laughs> I don't know what the show was about, but
1: it was uh, From what what I understand, it was about Ma Perkins, who lived in like a small town, who managed a farm and dispensed advice to people. But there was standard issue what would become tropes of soap operas in the show so there were it was long form <laughs> storytelling there were a lot of characters there were a few problems that had to be dealt with with regard to health and infidelity and romance and finances and other things each episode fed into the episode that would follow it the next day so it oh, it, it took the idea of a, a long form story and really made it long and in that format you can add more characters and settings and places and events so that there's a continuous urge to continue listening because what happens next it, you've built this sort of um like expanded, expanded universe, universe yeah. up to the point where you are and you don't want to miss the things that happen next you develop a like a rapport with the characters that keeps you listening
0: right and all of that is still very popular in today's you know Pop culture, yes. Maybe not so much with soap operas. I remember soap operas, or as you know, women used to call them, "my stories." Right. You know, being popular back in the seventies and eighties, and a lot of them still exist and still run. Right. Young and the Restless is still going. Right. But that whole like serialized long form storytelling—I mean, you only have to look so far as the MCU. You you don't. You don't. You
1: can look at at literally any TV that is uh, any TV series that's presented on streaming right now. Episodes go sure. from one to the next to the next to the next, and right. tell a long story over ten hours or twelve hours, or, but it's broken into ten or twelve episodes, or even
0: more. Like yeah, like like Stranger Things is like what five seasons?
1: Yeah, yes. Or you know, uh, and each each season's like thirteen hours. Yeah, each it's like a American Horror Story too, which is each season was a self-contained long-form story. Right. But if you started to watch it in episode three, you have to go back and watch episodes one and two, or you're going to be completely baffled. And you could,
0: and I, as a fan, I don't like this term, but they always call, you know, wrestling soap opera for men. You literally could, if you had the time, trace back a storyline that's going on right now, and there will be a thread that'll go all the way into the 70s and 80s. Right.
1: Right? Yeah. That's... I, well, say what you want
0: about wrestling, but there it is. Hey, you know? it, it,
1: like I said, there's, it's, it's long-form storytelling is, a, is definitely a, a part of it. Yeah. You couldn't do it, so there. <laughs> <All right.
0: laughs> uh, so moving on to the next day, August the 15th, 1985, and probably the biggest backstabbing in music history, uh. your friend of mine, Michael Jackson, purchases the rights to all of the Beatles catalog music. I
1: remember. Right, did he
0: the the nose of his good friend Paul McCartney?
1: Yeah, I think they were recording like that. The girl is mine, or something. And they, there was a conversation that they had, and Michael said, "Like, well, maybe I'll buy, you know, a, your catalog of music." And Paul McCartney's like, "Ha ha 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 ha." And then somewhere, well, I think what, in the I universe, think it even goes
0: further back than that. I really? think what had happened was Paul McCartney had said to Michael Jackson, he "Was like, you know, a, a good investment to make money is to is to purchase the right to songs." And then Michael Jackson said, well, you're dead, so I'll just buy your music.
1: (laughs) Yeah, celebrity voices. uh, No celebrities were harmed in the creation of the celebrity impersonations. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I believe that that was kind of how it it went down, too. And then McCartney was surprised when it's like somebody, I guess somebody moving into your house. You know, look, I know man. I I have a deed. I live here now. Like, well, but but I used to live here, (laughs) you don't anymore. (laughs) Michael Jackson was the guy, too, who, through his use of the Beatles as a business tool, started the process of licensing their music out for advertisements, commissioning the box sets that became really huge and popular, and I only learned, like, this week, that Uh up until after even Magical Mystery Tour, all of the American releases of Beatles records were different Beatles yep. records than they were in England. Yeah, different song I, I orders knew, and everything. Yeah, I knew that to an extent. I wasn't sure
0: which ones or whatever, but yeah, I know they were different uh, on some level or another, yeah.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that until until now. Oh, wow. Yeah, so now if you buy Beatles records, they're in the English, the British order with the British songs on it, but if you were to go back and buy like pre nineteen ninety. CDs yep. if there were CDs of the Beatles or whatever if you go back and you find Beatles records in a used record bin which is where I'm more likely to find them the yep. songs are different B-sides on singles are different order of songs on albums is different like Rubber Soul's different and uh-huh. Meet the Beatles is different there's no please please me like it's all this crazy stuff
0: uh so Michael Jackson ended up getting into some like financial trouble and he had sold about I think it was like 50% just about half right. of the Beatles catalog to Sony Right. Uh, Well, Sony agreed to buy it off him to help him out to get him out of debt. Right. And I can't imagine that. Like, how bad are you at handling your money when you're the most popular musician in the world and you've run up a tab? I don't get it. It, But whatever.
1: There was a long time that he wasn't touring, and that's that's where his money. That's where tour. That's where musicians' money comes from. Right. And and has since the 1990s. But yes. Right. Still, when you're man- when you're managing business entities like the Beatles catalog, and it's still hard to imagine that you'd be like, Oh, you know what, I I bounced my rent check, you know, what am I gonna do? Yeah.
0: You know, Sony ended up buying the rest of the fifty percent off of the Michael Jackson's estate whenever he passed away. Right. And then I just found an article and it goes back to like uh maybe a year, maybe two years ago. They estimated the value of the Beatles catalog at one billion. Yep. Paul McCartney was actually still looking to buy it back. He's like, oh, boy, this is the last fucking thing I do.
1: (laughs) I don't know. It may be the last thing he does. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. All right, moving on to the 16th. August 16th, 2018, Bill, not too far back. The world's Uh first floating dairy farm opens in Merwehaven Harbor in Rotterdam in the Netherlands with 40 cows milked by robots. And I, I don't even I don't even know what that sentence means. Those words don't make any sense to me in that order. What the hell is a floating dairy farm?
0: And it's like you just went to chat bot and said, please,
1: please, right. please write me a science fiction story. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Terminator Two, but features cows. I don't understand yeah. like how this works. And what kind of robots are we talking about here?
0: Right. I think it's because of uh, like our age and Generation X and stuff. Is whenever someone says a robot, I think of like C three Po. Right, you know. I, I I'm always thinking of like an anthropomorphic robot. You know, I don't picture. I I picture something from like the Boston Science like labs, the Boston Robotic Lab, <laughs> where just a bunch of crazy people. You know, right. So right. they make these robots move so lifelike. That's how I'm picturing these robots with like a a straw hat and farmer <laughs> jeans just <laughs>
1: <laughs> milking away time to milk the cows beep, beep. <laughs> uh, all i can imagine is you know there's probably one guy who oversees all of these robots and you know how many times a day does he make the joke what i really need is somebody who speaks the binary language of moisture evaporators
0: huh <laughs> i was about to say he probably has to delete his browser history <laughs> on the hour
1: <laughs> more than likely But, you know, or my mental model for this, like you, is C-3PO. And I can imagine, like, I'm so sorry, my hands are cold. (laughs) Every every time he touches a cow, you know, the cow jumps and he's like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) All right, uh, let's go
0: on to August the 17th, which is a celebrity birthday. August the 17th, 1943. American actor, are you talking to him, Robert De Niro?
1: (laughs) I love De Niro's earlier work. Most recently, his stuff isn't so spectacular, but he is one of those foundational actors from from when I started to learn from and understand film and storytelling. So things like Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and Once Upon a Time in America, all of these sort of epic gangster and really gritty 1970s films that he was in, I loved. He, He was also in the worst adaptation I've ever seen of a film, Called the gang that couldn't shoot straight. That was his first role. Um, probably
0: best known for a movie called Freelancers with <laughs> Freelancers. A couple of other people are in that movie. <laughs> right. So yeah, Robert De Niro has this like reputation. It's just like etched in his face of being like you know a, a tough guy. Right. You know, probably going to be best known for his uh, role in Taxi Driver. Right. And which led to in his later career. He did a lot of like comedies, but like cashing in on the fact that he's got that tough guy kind of reputation. Yes, like the uh, Meet, Meet the, the parents, parents movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, with uh, Ben Stiller, all right, and also the uh, analyze, analyze Analyze This that movie yeah. that with Analyze This and Analyze That with uh, Billy Crystal, right?
1: Yeah, and and again, he ultimately is playing a character of all of the tough guy characters he played when he was a young younger dude. Uh, In those films, he started to make the turn towards comedy when he made one of my favorite '80s action movies, *Midnight Run*, him and Charles Uh Groton. And um, the original script for *My Cousin Vinny* was written for him as the Vinny character. Oh wow, really? Yeah. And if you now that you know that, next time you watch that film, you'd be like, "Oh my god, I can totally see how De Niro would do this."
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. Because
1: it it was. I always get
0: him confused with Al Pacino too.
1: And I'll tell you, he turned that he turned that that script down because he thought it was too much like the character in Midnight Run. And oh. that's how that's how they ended up with uh, with Pesci, who like knocked it out of the park for that movie. Things so. All right, August eighteenth, nineteen twenty, Congress passes the Nineteenth Amendment to the Constitution that gives women the right to vote. So they
0: got the right to
1: vote in nineteen twenty, but it would be another twenty years before they were allowed to leave
0: the kitchen because that's the way things roll in this country.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I I think a lot of the gains that were promised by women's suffrage in the subsequent generations were lost. And we ended up with a government that's just as as it is now. Oh, I know. I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to do that. But, like, even though you're adding to the voter pool, with this whole other group of voters, it ultimately doesn't change the way that the system functions, which is a shame because the the suffragettes in Britain and ultimately that influenced the women's voting rights activists in the United States were built on the promise that with the ability to vote, they can make the change that the men have been unable to or unwilling to. It never happened. And
0: it also inspired that awesome David Bowie song. I said Bowie like an idiot. S- that Austin <laughs> David Bowie song.
1: Yeah, Suffragette City. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, women get the right to vote in 1920, which is, like, mind-blowing to get your head around because that was only 120, no, only 103 years ago. You know, the, the wheels of progress roll in one direction. Just the thought that, uh, you know, 103 years ago, before this amendment went through, people were voting on it, and people were voting against it. Yep. Should we give women the right to vote? No.
1: Are you mad? It's funny. Like, I, I'm somebody who likes the are The author, Robert Heinlein. And at the risk of us getting political, he is a different ideology politically than I am. But there, in one of his essays, he was talking about improving the way that we vote. And sometimes there might be a like an IQ test or you have to put money up not as a poll tax, but that you gamble that you can answer a quadratic equation before it unlocks the voting booth. But one of the things that he said is, like, maybe what we needed to do, like, we didn't get the change that was promised in 1920 when women were given the right to vote. Maybe it's because we it's not just them. So maybe we go 100 years with men can't vote and just let the women do it, and then maybe we'll get the change that was promised. And maybe Mm -hmm. we're the ones that are effing it all up. (laughs) I was like, that's pretty insightful, Robert. Uh, (laughs) You know what was funny was uh, I used to work with
0: this, kind of like almost cartoonish Fox News kind of type Republican guy, right? Uh, And this is in the 90s now, right? And he was putting forward the idea that your vote should count for how much money you make. Right. Because he thought that because he was college educated and this, that, and the other, and he made X amount of dollars a year, that his vote should count more than somebody that works at McDonald's. Right. And then I said to him, I go, do you really think that Marilyn Manson's vote should count like 10 times, 50 times what yours does and he looks at me and goes, "Oh my god, you just changed my mind.
1: You did it." <laughs> yeah, well, If something's going to change it should be that. That's that's a that's yeah. a, the Marilyn Manson equation is a good one. Flawless the old logic. The Marilyn Manson Gambit it yeah, works every right, time. The flawless logic.
0: All right, moving on to August the 19th. August the 19th, 1856. A man by the name of Gail, that, that was his name, yep. Gail Borden, that's going to sound familiar, Borden. It does D Gail Borden receives a patent for his improved process of making evaporated milk.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, evaporated milk, I've never purchased any. I remember my father <laughs> used to put that in his coffee,
1: yeah. which is weird. It, it's not that weird. I mean, I buy evaporated milk every couple of weeks because I use it in cooking. I use it in a lot of cooking that I do.
0: Okay, the I what do you use evaporated milk for? Because the only time I've ever heard evaporated milk is I was on a date with this girl and she was talking about making homemade caramel where she would, like, double boil it. Okay. Like, open up a can
1: So and double boil it. So, I'll start with the second thing and then go back to the original question. When you make okay. caramel at home, you use sweetened condensed milk and not evaporated milk? So that's a different thing.
0: No idea.
1: Yeah. Now I have no idea what evaporated milk is used for, other than my old man's coffee. (laughs) So I use evaporated. You can use evaporated milk in any place where you use milk in a recipe. If you don't have local milk, the key to this the story here, Bill, is the Mm. year that this takes place, eighteen fifty six. Right. What didn't we not have in eighteen fifty six? Milk. No, no. we we did not have milk robots. You know what? You're, You're correct. We also did not have refrigeration, but we did have, this is the beginning of the revolution of canning. So a way to make milk last longer than a few days is to evaporate it, make it sterile and can it. Then it becomes shelf stable and can stay in a root cellar or in a cabinet for weeks at a time or sometimes months at a time. And that's what evaporated milk does. The process of evaporating it is like putting it through a distillery. It clears out all the bacteria. It's already pasteurized. And then it can be canned safely for use later.
0: I'm just picturing evaporating. I'm just thinking like pouring it out on the driveway and just waiting for the sun to do its job. There's a funny video (laughs) you
1: can find of a, a lady in Britain who's convinced that there's nothing in the can of evaporated milk because...
0: It's evaporated. It's evaporated. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's pretty funny. I remember
0: that, like, like my father would get the cans of evaporated milk for his coffee. Yep. And he would open it with those little triangle, yeah, yep, punch holes and all that. And then, yeah, he wouldn't even keep it in the fridge. He would keep it in the cabinet with the holes in it. And it's like, I don't know. That doesn't seem like a great idea in 2023. But yeah. I guess you said it stays stable, right?
1: Well, yeah, it's but, like, you wouldn't open a can of sardines and then put the sardines back in the fridge open. Like, no. it's it's shelf-stable until you open it. Then once you open it, you should add water to it to thin it out a little bit, and then you can use it as milk. You can drink it as milk. You can put it in coffee as milk. You can use it as re- in recipes as milk.
0: Well, Father 1L
1: had a different recipe. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. All right, and then wrapping up the week. Uh, wrapping up the week. We have another celebrity birthday, 1948, uh, lead singer for Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant is born. Uh huh. He's born in West Bromwich, England.
0: I think we've uh, discussed this a couple of times. I never really listened to Led Zeppelin until, like, it's the Coke and Pepsi argument. I was a Pink Floyd fan, so ergo, I did not listen to Led Zeppelin. But I discovered just how wonderful Led Zeppelin is, probably about... 15 years ago now, mm-hmm. 10, 15 years ago. They're not a band I go back and listen to but when I uh, often, but when I do, I do enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I like Led Zeppelin. I hear them more often on the radio. It's usually the same four songs. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I'll stand up Led Zeppelin, too, is probably the best 1970s hard rock album uh, of the era, just by yeah. virtue of how good every song on it is. Robert Plant's an interesting guy. When John Bonham died and Zeppelin kind of disappeared... Yeah, hewed way more into uh, like a- more abstract poppy music, and yes. and weird country. He still he's still touring, but he tours with Allison Krauss. He's got like three or four records with Allison Krauss that he's done, and she's like a mandolin player. She's like a bluegrass mandolin player, and like her and Robert <laughs> Plant tour all the time.
0: I remember he put out that album in like the late eighties called Now in Zen. Yeah, and he had a very very pop oriented song called tall cool one yep and it had like samples and I don't know it' was like like the Led Zeppelin hardcore fans are like uh Robert can we can we chat because it's so not Led Zeppelin
1: right yeah well, it's like I I think the first, I like that song fine I think the first song I heard of his uh, as a solo artist was big log and I thought well, this is this is great like what is yeah. this this is great like that's Robert playing from Led Zeppelin you know, and then yeah. in, in the mood, which is a song that I've loved since the very first time I heard it, Uh way yeah. way different than what he he was doing before, and and I think just in general, his career lasted longer than Jimmy Page's, as far as being in the public eye. The word Jimmy mm-hmm. Page had a, was in and out of bands, but he wasn't the front man, so it's not the same thing. You know, there weren't Jimmy Page records that came out much after Led Zeppelin, but. Robert right. I think he
0: did that album with The Firm, yes. with the guy from Bad yep. Company. That was about it. Uh, yeah. That's a fantastic record. The two of them uh, did that Honey Trippers album, too. Don't forget yes. that. Yes, I know. I'm I, The Honey Trippers were great, too. All right, so uh, let's talk about our weird holiday for the week.
1: All right. Uh,
0: August the 16th is Roller Coaster Day.
1: Oh, that that day goes up and down, Bill.
0: Yep. First you go upside down,
1: and <laughs> then you go, oh, <laughs> Roller coaster day is a fun day. Yeah, if you like roller coasters. I love
0: roller coasters, and as of this recording, I have not been on a roller coaster since 2019. Thank wow. you, pandemic. Thank yeah. you, pandemic. Hopefully, hopefully things will change. I really do love love roller coasters, and I think it comes from when I was a kid. When we were kids, we had the roller coaster at the local amusement park, Lincoln yes.
1: Park. Yeah, I remember.
0: Which was like. The scariest thing you've ever ridden <laughs> on in your life. Built in
1: 1849 with 1849 tools and 1849 safety uh, or something. Yeah. yeah, that was a, that coaster was, even my dad, who fought in the Vietnam War and hand to hand combat with people who wanted to kill him, was like, don't get on that roller coaster. That thing's scary as hell. Yeah. That, and
0: also, keep in mind, it was also built in like 1800s dentistry. How <laughs> anybody's feelings stayed in their head after riding on that yeah.
1: thing. I tell you what, though, I loved it. I loved oh, yeah. that when I was a kid. I was way better yeah. than the coasters at Rocky Point because at Rocky Point I didn't feel like I was instantly going to die, but at, at there right. was a risk of death at Lincoln Park. This is the day the whole thing collapses. <laughs> yeah, like you would stand there in the queue line waiting, and you would watch
0: the the cart go above you, and you would just watch everything just shaking. You're like, that is coming down. <laughs> That's coming down, maybe not today, right. but soon. Oh, yeah. look,
1: I found a bolt. That's not a good sign, right? Yep, uh, yep, yep, yep. What,
0: what does this do? Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Do, you, do you have a favorite roller coaster that you've ever been on oh. besides uh, Besides that one? Well,
1: so I haven't been able to ride roller coasters for a number of years now because of my uh, Deller ticker. Uh, yeah. But the last one that I remember really, really enjoying was the wooden coaster they have here at Canobie Lake Park. I can't remember the name of it, but I went on that. A Yankee of Cannonball. Yankee Cannonball. That yep. one was a ton of fun. So I like the wooden coasters better. And that's more like just me remembering the sound that they make and the feel that they have and the view that you get.
0: Yeah, there's something about them because they were engineered by somebody with like
1: Two-by-fours. patent and paper, a T-square, <laughs> and an abacus, yeah. How many two-by-fours do we need to make this roller coaster? We're going to have to go to Home Depot. We're going to have to make a whole bunch of runs to Home Depot. I went on this one
0: in, and I don't think it exists anymore. It was in Virginia. It was called the Volcano. Yep. And it was a suspended coaster, which I don't really care for. Those are the ones where the track is above your head. Right. Uh, but it was launched. You would go through the track at the bottom. And then you would go like 90 degrees straight up. Right. And you would like pop out of the top of the volcano. It was shaped like a volcano. Right. And then you would circle around it on your way down. Mm-hmm. And I really liked it. The launch was awesome. But the whole thing was I felt like my wallet was coming out of my pants the entire time I was on the roller coaster. <laughs> so I was more paying attention to that than like having fun living in the moment of right, being right, on the right, roller coaster. Right. And I did not lose my my wallet.
1: Oh, that's, that's good. The first time I went on a coaster that did a loop-de-loop was at Rocky Point Park, their metal coaster. I forget what the name of yeah, it was.
0: Yeah, probably Loop Coaster. They weren't really... Uh, right.
1: They weren't, yeah, su- not super uh, super exciting as far as naming goes. All I really right. remember from the experience of riding that for the first time is it was like nine seconds. It was the yeah. fastest coaster i would ever been on. And it was because the track was super short. You know. Right. It was, and you, you
0: remember you you had to pay extra to go on that. You yeah. had to pay like an extra 75 cents or yeah. something.
1: Yeah, it was like I just I just throw my money at the at, at somebody else. It's because yeah. it's wow. so fast, right?
0: But it was like the first looping coaster in our area. Yep.
1: You know? It was a drone. So it
0: was like, wow, this sucks. And yeah, yeah <laughs> you'd
1: wait you wait like an hour for literally 15 seconds of, of roller coaster time. i I remember that. My mom used to get furious, like, we didn't come, here just to stand in line. Uh huh. Okay, uh, so
0: we're trying something new this week. Instead of the worst song ever, we're having da, 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 da. The Worst Movie Ever. Okay, Jeff, new segment. Let's uh, let's <laughs> talk about the worst movie ever. What are we watching this week, Jeff?
1: So, this week we are watching a film called The Thing With Two Heads starring <laughs> a late career Ray Milan, who is an Oscar-winning actor in the 50s and uh-huh. football extraordinaire Rosie Greer with a handful of TV actors sort of sprinkled in to make the plot work.
0: So, one, before we get into the synopsis of this movie, let's make mention of the fact that this movie came out in 1970. In 72. 1972. Yeah. And race relations in this country have always been a little odd and 1972 is like not even ten years after the civil rights amendments went through. Right. So we're still in the in this country kind of learning how to coexist right uh with you know with African Americans who should have been a little more integrated into society right by then, but they weren't unfortunately. So this movie was set in a way to you know explore how whites and blacks can coexist together
1: um, <laughs> on the back of a motorcycle
0: yeah literally yeah um, and I'm, I'm guessing that the heart was in the right place but we still did not know how to go about doing things properly
1: it seemed like a good idea at the time the white bigot was dying and the black soul brother needed time to prove his innocence more power to you brother I want to transplant my head on a healthy body. I think I like to donate my body to science after all. So they transplanted the white head onto the black body. Who would have suspected that neither would care for the idea too much?
0: What are you guys doing to me? Let me tell you, I just went back and watched this movie. Actually, not. I can't say went back and watched it. I, I'd i never seen it before. I'd only heard about it. But we watched it as part of our um, virtual movie nights during the pandemics yes. and stuff. And this movie has aged like a fine Greek yogurt. <laughs> let me tell you
1: it's definitely like a open can of evaporated milk left in the cabinet for too long yeah
0: uh, <laughs> I, why would there riots after this uh, movie
1: well okay so seventy seventy two is the is that's kind of where exploitation cinema starts up so there's a whole like secondary market yeah for black produced black written black acted uh, films for mm-hmm. a black audience and this because it was like a drive-in movie film, spanned yep. both the black audience and the white audience. And it, it really does take its time to try and, and explore the idea of race relations, but it does it with such ham-handed fury that it's impossible like, not to get the message just yelled at you for two hours. I watched this movie all the <laughs> way through last night, and I, I will say this, this is my second time seeing it. The first time yep. I was far less interested in it, last night when i watched it though i really liked it i was laughing and laughing and laughing at a lot of the comedy that i didn't see the first time that i saw it so let me give let me give everybody a quick uh a, quick synopsis, a quick synopsis of the, movie, of the yeah. movie uh there's a doctor with his own sim- foundation uh played by ray Meland, who is a bigot yep. he does not like black people he, in fact he's hired a doctor by mail played by a guy named don marshall who when he shows up as a black guy rainbow land fires him he's like i i don't hire black people so see you later he's like i moved here i moved here to like to take this job and he fires him anyway and the guy that guy's like a brain surgeon so he fires him anyway meanwhile rainbow land is dying he has a bad heart and he in his research up to this point has found a way to graft the head of one animal onto the body of a similar animal that already has a head so he's got a two-headed gorilla (laughs) <laughs> that right. That uh and, and is
0: his test. Here's a fun fact about that two-headed gorilla. The man inside the gorilla suit was Rick Baker. Yeah. Okay? Special effects artist Rick Baker, famous for poltergeist and all that, who went on to much bigger gorilla roles yeah. because he was the guy in the King Kong suit in 1977's King Kong. Can you King imagine Kong. that? Yeah. Can you imagine that? He was a two-headed gorilla in Rick in uh the thing with two heads, and then they call him up like, "We got another role for you." He's like, "Oh, it's not another gorilla, is it?"
1: I wonder if I wonder if that like, well, is it a two-headed gorilla? And I'm like, no, it's one-headed gorilla. Like, is it gonna pay less because it's only one head? No, <laughs> no, it's not. Anyway, so he's got a two-headed gorilla that they his is proof of concept that this thing can work. And what he needs is a body so that his head yeah. can be sewn onto this other body, just for a month until they can find another person to graft him onto that doesn't have a head at all. And right. The person they end up with is Rosie Greer, who's in jail because he was technically wrongfully accused of being an accessory to murder, and he's got the death sentence. So they bring him Rosie Greer. Rosie Greer, for those of you who don't know, is a six and a half foot tall, 350 pound football player who was super famous in the early 1970s and late 1960s for being a giant football player. He's also really funny. And he gets his sentence. I think he did some
0: commercials too. He did.
1: He gets 30 days added to his his sentence, so he won't be killed for 30 more days as he goes on to be part of this medical test, which is what they call it. And so they, they right. put him out, and he wakes up with Ray Moland's head, <laughs> like, kind of stuck on his shoulder and grafted to his neck. They both. Yep. It's not like they would be fighting for dominance in the body, but Ray Moland can obviously feel kind of what's going on in the Rosie Greer party. And he's super pissed that he's tied, he's sewn on to Rosie Greer, uh, who realizes kind of what's going on and just wants to get out and clear his name. So.
0: And let me tell you the makeup and special effects in this movie are astounding. In no way. Of that definition of, the, of that word. <laughs> right. It really looks like Ray, Ray Meland is just riding on Rosie Beer piggyback style, like Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back.
1: So there are, there are like two fake heads that are not gorilla heads of this. One is a Rosie Greer head and the other one is a Ray Meland head. Because there are scenes yeah. like during the surgery where only one of them is the person's head. And then they have to like move the disconnected head to the side of the neck and they have a bit where they're going to take Rosie Greer's head off and uh, they don't actually do it but there's there's two heads and they you they clearly spent money making these heads because the Ray Meland head looks just like Ray Meland. You know it's yep. not him because it's like it's on a table and it's got tubes coming out of it. And the Rosie Greer right. head looks like Rosie Greer. But the way that they achieve it for the rest of the film is like Ray Meland is wrapped around Rosie Greer's belly and his head is pushed <laughs> up on his shoulder and they're both sharing a turtleneck with two holes in it. To hide the fact that they're both there. Anyway, uh, Rosie Greer gets the doctor to help him, talks to the doctor. They escape. They First, they steal a car. Then they, they're they being followed by the police. Then they steal a motorcycle at a BMX race, and, or at a, yeah. a, a motocross race. And then for the next 35 minutes, they drive around a motocross track and car, cop cars smash into things.
0: Yeah, I remember watching this for the virtual movie night, and <laughs> the entire second act... Of the movie, you know, movies are basically breaked up into three parts, right? He's got a first act, second act, third act. The entire second act is the chase, and it just goes back and forth, back and forth across, and forth across like the same field, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. same like two hundred yards of open field. Yeah, they
1: pass the same tree, they go over the same bridge, they cop cars fall into the same chasm over and over and over again.
0: It's like the third act of the Blues Brothers, but not interesting in any way, shape, or
1: form. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely true. And then he ends up going back to his girlfriend's house. Where he, he and Ray Milan with his head still stuck on him have sex with his girlfriend because she's so happy to see him. I don't know how that happens, but you got to really love somebody if there's another dude stuck to his head. <laughs> and you're willing to get busy. But she is. And ultimately, yeah. that's the end of the movie. It just ends. So they the other <laughs> other the the, other, the black doctor takes Ray Milan's head off. And I guess Rosie Greer gets cleared because it's never clear that that's what happens. And then he says, "You gotta find me another body." And then it cuts to Ro- Rosie Greer laughing. And then it's the credits come up. So it like it like right. just ended by mistake. Yeah, like him, his girlfriend, and then
0: the the black doctor are like driving down the highway, and they're singing "Oh Happy Day." And <laughs> Kirshner's head is just like on a table somewhere, <laughs> like yeah. you know, being racist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The movie kind of ends. It's like well. Maybe we could have extended the scene a little longer with the chase. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I think it's because they just ran out of the motorcycle footage of the obviously not Rosie Greer stuntman with the stuffed head stuck on his shirt, um, right? Driving around the tree, and then they're like, "Oh, we've we've got to end this movie." Like I don't know. <laughs> Nobody's paying attention anymore, so just put the credits up.
0: <laughs> I remember hearing about this movie. There was a. A, a funny documentary I watched when I was a kid I used to come on HBO all the time called It Came From Hollywood and right. it was about B-movies and it was hosted by like Dan Aykroyd Gilda Radner a lot of the original Saturday Night Live cast right. and stuff and it's a really really funny documentary if you can find it and this movie was in it and it always stuck in the back of my head as an interesting movie to watch just for how weird it is <laughs> and what a what a weird premise yeah. we're gonna have this like white guy that's racist attached to a black guy's body it'll be funny it'll be a it'll be a who well
1: well there's some like there's some it's not even subtext i can't even use that word it anywhere near this yep. movie because it doesn't apply but there's some it's as subtle as a heart attack isn't right. it jeff yes it's as subtle as, as, as subtle as a defibrillator going off uh it, it's <laughs> that like raymond land is the the it, it, if they put him in clan robes it wouldn't have been any more clear that he was a racist asshole right right Rosie Greer has all of the black criminal stereotypes attached to his character so he's he's big and scary, he's in jail and they're yeah. going to kill him, the justice system it doesn't didn't listen. He was wrongfully accused of murder. It turns out that what happened was somebody stole a gun from him that he used to own or somebody got killed yeah. with a gun that he used to own and he got framed for the murder. And like all of these things that would be parts of individual parts of an actual story are all just glommed yep. onto him. And then everything else is these two bickering, head, these two bickering heads. They all they do is bicker about race relations. It was really funny. It was really funny and yeah. and and really and really goofy. You can see how the script came
0: about. It's like, all right, I got an idea for a script. We got this big black guy, right, and we're gonna graft the head of a white guy to it. Okay, I'm listening. What about it? I don't know.
1: <laughs> what about it? Look, I, I got some friends with That's all I got. with some uh, motocross bikes. Uh, I, yeah. I think what they did was they actually... I'm not really a detail guy, right, okay? <laughs> right. The, the, guy that, the people that wrote this were Ross, Ross West Bishop, and James Gordon White. And at some point, they must have looked at their script and said, this thing is great. It's fantastic. This is going to like... four pages and of it. Yeah, it's, it's only 54 pages long. And every page in a script is one minute. So w- what are we right. going to do to wrap up this 50... 50- we can't make a TV episode of this. So we have to make this into a movie. And they thought, yeah. I know exactly what we'll do. We'll get the the local kids on their on their dirt bikes, and we'll chase them around with, with cop cars that say Acresfield, California on them, not Bakersfield, California, even though it was shot in Bakersfield, California.
0: <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up the show completely, yep. I do have my very popular and always well received trivia question. Hey, Jeff.
1: Oh, oh, that's right. I thought we were All gonna right. forget about this, but okay.
0: We never forget. <laughs> um, typically nowadays, at the uh, when a football player gets a touchdown you will see him take this football just throw it as hard as he can into the ground who was the first football player to
1: do this and how about why oh man i don't remember the guy's name uh so i'm gonna lose that that half a point but you i get no points i get no points but i do i do know the reason and, and it was because okay. it was because the uh, the nfl at the end of the 1960s got tired of people potentially suing them for uh, being
0: it's not it's not the... It was
1: 1962. Oh, so it was, oh, it was much earlier. Okay. It, the NFL imposed a fee of, like, 500 bucks on players who were throwing the ball into the stadium after every touchdown, because, like, <laughs> balls cost money. They have to bring another one out. They're all measured in weighed and, and other things, and it's a pain in the neck. Um, and yeah. also, there's a potential like, you know, we've done baseball stories here where people get beamed in the face. You get beamed in the right. face with a football. It can also cause you some some, some issues. So so there was a yeah and
0: that's the thing too like if a you know if a baseball gets smacked out of the park you know into the stands and you get dinged in the head that is completely by accident because you know who knows where that ball is going to go but if you throw a football into the stands that's it you're liable right Uh. so yeah so they used to sue him for you know they used to penalize the players $500 the, the guy's name is Homer Jones okay and I'm wrong also it was 1965 so smack dab right in the middle <laughs> of the 60s so there we go so Yep. So here comes Homer Jones. He's this was like it was like his first touchdown, too. Right. And he's running and he's running, he's running, he gets the football, and he wanted to throw it into the stands, but they literally had just instituted the five hundred dollar um, fee. The fi- the five hundred dollar fine. And he thought to himself, Oh, bollocks, you know, if I throw this <laughs> I'm gonna lose five hundred dollars. So, yeah, he threw it into the ground instead, and that's where the tradition of the football spike came in. The ah. guy's name was Homer Jones, and he just passed away like um, in the beginning of June. Oh, okay.
1: Yep. I think I should get a half point for that. Just putting um, that out
0: there. Well, let's let the audience decide. I'm going to give you three quarters of a point because I get the year wrong. All right. Well, I was going to say so we could let the audience
1: decide if, if that one was worthy. Yep.
0: Uh, point, point three in a row for Jeff. All right. All right, that's going to wrap up the show for this week. We'll see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff.
1: night, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. A special shout-out to James Costa for our theme music. Thank you for listening to Twibbly, Or this week was way better than last year. You can find us or message us over on Facebook or Instagram or the hot new social media app that I just made up called SPAC Group. That's group with two O's and two P's. we looking for Twibbly. Subscribe to the podcast. That way you can guess where and how many times Bill had to edit out the phrase, well, there you go, from Jeff's audio track before publication.